Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, John, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, teetering tech, why one name in particular might be the key to the entire market. We'll discuss and debate that with the Investment Committee. Joining me for the hour today, Shannon Sakosha, Mr. Wonderful, Kevin O'Leary's back. Jim Labenthal here, along with Joe Terranova. Let's go to the wall, check the markets, 12 noon in the east. What really jumps out to us, not on the left, the Dow up 229. Okay, that's great. NASDAQ's down 1%, right around the lows of the day, down 128. And we're going to get to what is the biggest week of the year, right? The Fed meeting starts tomorrow. We know what's going to happen, we think. Any surprises? Who knows? We'll discuss that in a minute. First, though, Apple. Is it the key to the whole market right now, Farmer Jim Labenthal, who, by the way, trimmed this stock in January, has not added back to it since, even though he's back to Mr. All-In. Apple shares are down 15 percent since Jim Labenthal told us on January 4th he was trimming that stock. It's at a key level right now, according to MKM's J.C. O'Hara. He's a technician there. 152 and change. Jim Labenthal. Hey, thanks, Scott. Um, I don't think it's the key to the market. Yes, it's important, but here's why I don't think it's the key to the market. I see no way that it can expand its multiple in a regime where interest rates are slowly going to rise. If that's the case, if I'm right about that, then the share price growth for the next 12 months is going to be exactly equal to the earnings per share growth over the next 12 months. Depending on whose estimates you use, that's anywhere from 8 to 12 percent. Now, I'm not throwing shade at that. I still own a position, albeit below market weight. If I got 10 percent in Apple over the next 12 months, I'd be happy. But honestly, I don't think it's the key to the market because I see other areas of the market where you're going to get higher earnings per share growth and potentially multiple expansion. Mostly I'm talking about the cyclicals, but even a tech stock like Qualcomm that could apply. The reason that we talk about Apple so much is because it's what, 6% of the S&P 500? So in that regard, it is important. But we have seen uh, this year and last year periods of time where Apple underperforms and the market goes higher. And I think that's what we're going to see here. I think Apple will go higher, but I think the market will go more higher. And I think cyclicals will do even better than the market overall. Maybe, Shannon, it's different this time. And maybe I say that because what happened in the past with Apple, does it really matter now? You have a teetering market. You have the market on edge. And the Nasdaq is ground zero for the teetering that the market is feeling right now. And if you have a mega cap stock like Apple, the biggest in the market, break down if it goes below 152 and then it goes below 150 and it starts to really break down. You're telling me the market's going to be able to withstand that like Jim Labenthal just made the case it would? Well, I think it's important why it's breaking down, Scott. I mean, if you want to talk about potential supply chain disruptions that we're hearing out of China and that impacting 
Apple's ability to fulfill orders, well, then that might be justifiable to see a little bit of weakness in the stock. If you're talking about just the spillover effect from the rest of the growth trade and a sell-off in tech, I think there's many of us who have significant positions in high-quality tech stocks who realize that you know there are likely to be a couple of legs down for these stocks and that the reality is is that if you are underweight to the market or you have a no position in Apple, I would say some continued weakness in this near term over the next four to six weeks could offer you an opportunity to perhaps add to, it, add to the position or add a position in Apple if you don't have it. It's still the number one global consumer brand. And the last time I looked, Scott, the consumer is not completely on the sidelines, even with the inflation that we've seen. So I would say to you, it is likely to have a negative impact on the index, just given the weight, as Jim said. Um, but, you know, in terms of just we're seeing the spillover effect across these big cap tech names. And I don't think, aside from these supply chain dislocations, that we should spend too much time worrying about another, um, you know, X decline in Apple in this next couple of weeks. Mr. Wonderful, it's good to have you back. It's nice to see you. And my point is, is clear. I'm not suggesting that Apple should go down. I'm not suggesting it will or it needs to. But the fact is, if it does, we got a problem. There's no way around it. How can you have the biggest stock in the market get upset further than it already is and have the rest of the market stabilize? I can't see that happening. You know, I'm more constructive on Apple, perhaps, than others. Um, it, it is the consumer index globally. Uh, why should it go down? Well, I get the PE compression. I get the Fed, you know, raising rates, although I'm more dovish in the way I look at it. I don't think we're going to get a lot of Fed movement hurting tech beyond what's already happened because it's been a slaughter fest so far. But Apple's in a different category. Number one on the supply chain issues, they have access to semiconductors. They have access to chips. They are forever tied to the China economy where they have access that other companies don't have. They're so big as an employer that the Chinese government is not going to shut them down from a supply chain side of things, number one. Number two, I don't see any wane of demand of the product or service anywhere in any geography. So I get the PE compression. And in terms of earnings surprises, any company doing north of 8% earnings growth, I want to own anyways, particularly if it's a behemoth that's unlikely to have a real big downside surprise one quarter after another. But the real issue on Apple that started everybody's journey into this name years ago was the emergence of the services business, which has not slowed down. So I get selling a stock when all the metrics change, particularly the underlying growth. People use their phones, phones all around the world more and more and more and more in terms of services, and that's a really high margin business. I don't know why you wouldn't take the opportunity here of a 14% sell-off for whatever reason you want to pick and get up to a 5% weighting in your portfolio of a name that has been said every year it's over for Apple. This is the end for Apple. Apple's going away. It's going to be the BlackBerry. No, it isn't. It's part of everybody's life around the world, at least 50% of the time. I think we're having two different conversations. I don't think we're talking about the fundamentals of Apple breaking down. That's not what this conversation's about. It's about this stock being caught in a technical downdraft that if it continues, Joe, to go lower, the overall market has a problem. We're not debating the merits of Apple as a company, the fundamentals of the business or where it currently sits. The fact of the matter is, Joe, if Apple continues to go lower, the Nasdaq, which can't get out of its own way, isn't going to be able to tomorrow if that happens. Yeah, just just drop the mic because you've stated it perfectly. The Nasdaq is basically uh, within a touch of taking out the February 24th low. 
Uh, the S&P is trading below the January 24th low. And the impact of Apple continuing to move lower is not going to do anything to improve the most important catalyst right now for the market, and that's sentiment. What the market has been doing since the beginning of the year has been neutralizing bullish sentiment and bullish positioning. I can tell you personally, I own Apple. I own Apple for all the fundamental reasons that Shannon, Jim, and Kevin have communicated and you've acknowledged. But from the perspective of sentiment, positioning, and technicals, I could share with you that the Joe T ETF, the strategy, it sold Apple on January 28th at 175. Why? Because we're studying two factors, quality and momentum. And guess what? The momentum factor broke down at the end of January. Sentiment didn't. Positioning didn't. And that's what's happening right now. The bullish sentiment, the bullish positioning in Apple is being neutralized. I'm not saying that's the correct strategy, but that's what's unfolding. Facts and yes, Scott, it will absolutely impact. It will impact the indexes. And by the way, it took out the 200-day moving average today for the first time since Q2 of last year. Well, that's why... J.C. O'Hara at MKM says watch 152, which we were above when we came on, which we're below eight and a half minutes after. You talk a lot about sentiment, Joe. I got a sentiment thing for you. And I think this next thing that I'm going to show you tells the story of sentiment better than everything else. Did you know, Farmer Jim Labenthal, that the SARC is now trading higher than the ARC? That the short ARC ETF... (laughs) Thank you, John Spallanzani, by the way, for setting this just before we came on the air. The SARC is trading at a higher price than the ARC. The short ARC fund ETF is trading higher than the ARCs itself. Now, isn't that the ultimate sign of sentiment, Farmer Jim Labenthal? It's, it's a sign of for the sentiment. First time I'm ever. glad you're bringing this up. For the first time ever, by yep. the way. Yeah, listen, let me cut to the chase. When we're talking about ARC or we're talking about the NASDAQ, you're talking about sector ETFs. Make no mistake about it. Let me just let me focus on the NASDAQ for a second before I get to the ARC. Two thirds of the NASDAQ is tech and communication services. And you know what that is? It's FANG. By the way, throw in Tesla and you get to about 80%. It is a sector ETF. And when you talk about ARC, you are talking about a subsector ETF. You are not talking about the market overall. Now, Scott, I understand the point you're trying to make. There is some validity to it because Apple is 6% of the S&P 500, but there's 94% of the S&P 500 that isn't Apple. And that's the point I would make. And there's 75% of the S&P 500 that isn't FANG. If you're talking about ARC or you're talking about NASDAQ, you are in sector funds. And you know what? ARC deserved to go down. Sorry. It was foolish to be paying 40 times sales for any company. It was foolish to be talking about companies' market caps in comparison to their total addressable market and not paying attention to earnings. But outside of those sectors, things look a lot better than in those sectors. All I'm suggesting, Shan, is if that doesn't tell a story about where we are, I don't know what does. And I could throw anything else up there and it doesn't matter. If you show me that the stocks that were once so loved in this market not all that long ago and now an ETF that benefits by those stocks going down now has a higher price than the ARC itself. That's just a that's just an interesting piece of information to have in your pocket, Shannon. 
Well, I think Joe made a great point when he talked about just kind of looking and taking a step back from fundamentals. And and frankly, I would take a step back a, a bit in some parts of the technical market as well. We are not seeing kind of persistence or being able to anticipate what's going to happen over the course of the next couple of weeks by any of the metrics that we traditionally use, um, except in small, you know, kind of sub-industries, sub-sectors. I think the challenge here is that you're pointing out um, really the death of the story stock. And so in my view, what needs to happen is that we need to go beyond the story, which was the pandemic. Many of those stocks are back to where they were pre-pandemic. It's like they almost never occurred. And so post-pandemic, what is the opportunity in some of those companies? Is it still, you know, potentially growing at these outsized growth rates? Perhaps. Um, but right now, you're not going to get that tailwind of sentiment to Jim's point. And so I look at it in terms of if we're looking at higher quality companies being able to grow their earnings against a more difficult backdrop with higher interest rates and potential, potentially less accommodation, particularly from a fiscal perspective, then don't you then go back to, again, Higher quality sectors like technology, like healthcare, companies that are continuing to grow their earnings, companies that have a competitive advantage. And I would say some of those, even in ARC, have that, Scott. And so, uh, you know, I would hate for everyone to just throw all of those companies out for the next five years, but rather just reset your expectations to what did the opportunity look like pre-pandemic for these companies? Did they have, you know, the potential to grow that addressable market? That's the important point here. All right. So let's talk some big picture. And, and what we said at the outset was the biggest week of the year. Why? Because the Fed starts meeting tomorrow. Ten years at 210. We talked about what's happening at Apple. Watch that stock. That makes it a big week. What's going to happen with oil prices? Well, they're down like seven plus percent today. That's one of the reasons why the Dow full of industrial stocks is up. I want to know whether you think we've bottomed Kevin O'Leary, because a lot of commentary on the street today says, no, we have not. Wolf Research, no sustainable bottom anywhere in sight. Goldman cuts its S&P 500 earnings and price target for the second time in a month. And BTIG's Jonathan Krinsky, a frequent guest on this show, says internals and credits suggest that equities, quote, have yet to see their final flush. Are they right or wrong? You know, I look at it a different way. You have to really focus on Fed. And Fed is now back in the focus because I think a lot of people have already absorbed the tragedy that's occurring in the Ukraine. They understand what's going to happen. And they, in some cases, have already figured out what the end game is going to be. Now, I look at it a different way. The Fed has lots of reasons to be more dovish than hawkish, and I'll give you some. So I'm in the camp that says Fed already has announced a 25 basis point, but we're not going to get six or seven rate hikes this year. There's too much uncertainty in our own domestic economy to do that. And the market, in my view, and comments like the ones you just made, price in a much more aggressive Fed, a much more hawkish Fed, a much faster time Fed. All of that I do not believe to be true. So at some point, in the spring or early summer, people are going to say, wow, I've gone through, you know, 50 basis points of Fed hikes. Things aren't as bad as I thought. Earnings look pretty good. And we're starting to solve supply chain problems domestically. I think we're going to get 8, 9, 10% earnings growth in the S&P 500. Why did I sell those stocks again and put them into bonds that are making me practically nothing after inflation? I think at the end of the day, this is just a pause that refreshes. I am not in the camp that says we're getting a recession or a major drawdown past what we've got already. This is a mild manner reporter correction, healthy in some sense. And certainly we've decimated a lot of story and tech names. And I'm starting to 
tiptoe through the tulips and buy some of those controversial names because I like their growth rates still intact. It's all about the Fed. And I don't mean to dismiss the tragedy happening in Europe. But what does that have to do with S&P earnings? Practically nothing. And so at the end of the day, ask yourself, does a consumer not buy something downtown in, in Champaign-Urbana because of what's going on in the Ukraine? They still buy stuff. That's and look, don't shoot the messenger. That's just what's happening. I and they I think might, our domestic economy. They, they might not buy as much or stop buying because of where inflation is. You Mish consumer sentiment was horrible. Right. So I hear what you're saying, but there are those who think the Fed is going to be undeterred by where we're at because inflation's so bad that they need to get their arms around it faster than not. And that's the view of Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson who, by the way, has a new note today, and I'm going to go head-to-head -head with on overtime later at 4 o'clock Eastern time. You don't want to miss that. I'll save his headlines for later, but he thinks they're going to be hawkish. Kevin O'Leary, maybe it's a pipe dream to think that the Fed is all of a sudden going to get more dovish. And by the way, Mohamed El Arian over the weekend on CBS, uh, their Sunday show, if there are seven interest rate hikes, he said, we're going to go into a recession. Yeah, I don't, I don't think we're going to get seven interest rate hikes because it would put us into a recession. The Fed has seen this story before. They know that movie. They're not going to do that. We still have structural issues, and one of them is inflation, primarily on protein and food and energy. Energy may self-resolve quickly. The sentiment's changing there about getting more production happening in the U.S., and we have politics at play, which often starts to focus the government on issues to try to reduce inflation. If I were Biden right now going into these midterms, and I have all these supporters in my party worried about what I'm doing, about solving the price of chicken and steak and all kinds of other food items and gasoline at over $5 in San Diego, I think you're going to start to see some jawboning that may take the pressure off there. I'm just more optimistic. I love it when everybody turns because it gives you a buying opportunity. I mean, it, the sentiment right now is getting really negative. And I've seen this movie before. I hope it gets even worse. Let me buy more stock. So you think we're bottoming? We're, if we're not yes. there, we're close? We're close. You can never pick the bottom. I wish I could. But I've started to average into the decimated names and all this negativity piling in. This is the opportunity. You have to learn from the past. Well, what are the decimated I'm, names? What are you talking about specifically? Well, pick any tech stock you wish. Pick a monster like Facebook. That's taken up behind the barn and cut in half. You think people have stopped advertising on Facebook? No, they haven't. The Chinese names are on sale today, 7 to 9% down. What a slaughter fest. That's after they've been cut in half. So, you know, yeah, I've seen this But that's not representative before. of the overall market. Those are individual story things, those Chinese names, for a variety of reasons. They're down because you have the biggest uptick in COVID cases in mainland China since the start of the pandemic. And then you obviously have the regulatory, the delisting issues that have weighed heavily on those stocks. So I hear you. They're attractive, maybe, to someone like you because they've come down a lot, but that's not representative of a pullback in the overall market. The market may very well be up, and those stocks could still be down. It's important that everybody hate the name you're buying. Absolutely important. You want to have every analyst saying it's going to zero, then you buy some. That's how it works. You have to look at the fundamental growth rates. That's what matters about everything. Growth, growth, growth. Are they still growing or not? Now, energy, you know, which was a great ride, I'd say it's time to sell. I've done that. That was a fantastic move, but it's over right. because we're going to solve our energy problems. All right, we're going to get to those uh, specific names that you're putting some money into uh, a little bit later. 
right at session lows of the Nasdaq. Just want to point that out as we bring in on the phone now our halftime headliner today, Liz Ann Saunders, chief investment strategist at Charles Schwab. Welcome back. It's nice to not see you, but nonetheless have you on on the phone. Thank you. Nice to nice to be here. So <laughs> be heard. <to> speak. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know how much of the prior conversation uh, you heard, um, but we have set this up as not only what we think is the biggest week of the year, but the fact that a lot of tech stocks uh, remain in trouble, led by the biggest one of all, which is right at a key level. What are you watching more than anything else today? Well, I, I think we'll continue to be at the mercy of uh, headlines out of Russia, Ukraine. That's a short-term driver, even on a, in a week like this where we've got the FOMC meeting. I don't expect any major fireworks or surprises. We're expecting what might be defined as a as a dovish um, hike based on 25 basis points coming, but reflecting the uncertainty, obviously, with regard to Russia, Ukraine. I think with regard to the tech stocks, I think there, there's a shift that has been occurring over the last few months that I think is really important. I think there are these subsets of, of stocks, be it tech broadly or the, you know, the big five, the super seven, whatever subcategory you want to look at, that investors are not looking at them with a monolithic lens anymore, that there is uh, more discernment, and that's reflected in active doing better relative to passive. And I, I think that individual fundamentals factor Based strategies. That's where you're seeing more consistency in terms of leadership. And, and that group of stocks, they were absolutely the pandemic lockdown era's defensive names, and that persisted even coming out of the lockdowns. But you just can't look at them as, as sort of this monolithic category anymore. And uh, I think there are still a lot of investors who do. You know, I, I led you the way I did, but I think your headline today from what you told our producers is that you think this is going to continue to be a risk off market environment. So you're not urging clients to put some money to work. Well, we are we actually recently from a tactical perspective, basically neutralized um, all of our recommendations at the broad asset class level, at the sector level, which simply means telling investors to stay at their strategic allocations. This is not the time to try to make a, a bet. I, I think, you know, bottom calling, top calling is always a difficult exercise and, and quite frankly should never be done if you're making that decision with all or nothing in terms of, of, of you know, money, all in, all out. I think that there's there's clearly upside at some point if we get a resolution on Russia, Ukraine. Of course, the other tale is the ultimate worst case scenario that I don't think you can hedge for, which would be this turning into you know, World War III, especially if it's got that nuclear component to it. You can't really hedge for that. But we also know upon a resolution, you could see the market rip. You could see a, a big uh, move down in commodities. And you don't want to be left out in the cold if that happens. So the, the best strategy at this point is to not try to kind of game this, especially as it relates to Russia, Ukraine, and use things like more periodic, uh, more frequent rebalancing to navigate through the kind of volatility that we're seeing on a day-to-day basis and even on an intraday basis. I mean, there are some who suggest you, you get a favorable resolution or some legitimately favorable headlines and you could get a 3 to 5% rally in the S&P. So I, I take your point for, for what it is. But at some point, you have to look at the environment and suggest, okay, well, maybe even if you're, you're not interested in calling a bottom, which of course is near impossible uh, to do, you have to look at the environment and suggest, well, 
maybe it's a more risk on environment today than it was yesterday. Uh, Justice, today you suggested it's going to remain a risk off environment. What would lead you to get more positive? Um, some sort of resolution uh, out of Russia, Ukraine. Even beyond I think that? That's- like, are you, is it an earnings well, thing? That, is it the Fed? What is to, it? Yeah, then I think we're back to the Fed, uh, recession risk, ultimately bear markets. And we're in one, maybe not officially using the simplistic definition for the S&P 500, although the average member maximum drawdown over the past 52 weeks, even for the S&P, is 25%. So we've had a stealth bear market even before the NASDAQ and Russell hit it in kind of official, simplistic uh, terms. I think ultimately, whether it gets worse from here, um, how quickly we can start a rebound is sort of recession versus no recession. Um, that's ultimately what defines the severity and length of bear markets. And, and clearly, we're in a unique period of time with the Fed ostensibly about to start to tighten with the yield curve as flat as it is and growth expectations as low as they are. This is very unique for the Fed to be launching a, a tightening cycle. That probably makes it maybe more difficult to engineer a soft landing, which is always a bit uh, tricky. But I think assuming we get a Russia-Ukraine resolution, and, and let's let's hope we do get that, then I think it's not just, you know, five or eight hikes or six or seven. I think that that's just a parlor game. I'm not sure what the value is of that. But what happens actually to the growth backdrop? Um, Are we seeing continued elevated risk of recession? Does the yield curve invert? And then I think there's a a more fundamentally based uh, backdrop for whether risk on has legs or or whether you might still get risk on days. Um, But uh, I I think ultimately it's it's fed the curve um, and the economic backdrop that will define what the market does. At what point, I mean, look, you're the chief investment strategist, not the chief equity strategist, so I can broaden this out beyond stocks. At what point do bonds become more attractive than stocks, as some today are, in fact, suggesting? So we, we're thinking that on the you know upper end, all else sort of equal with, with the, the data that we know right now, you probably don't have a lot more upside on the 10-year beyond maybe two and a quarter. And that could give you an opportunity to lengthen duration. We've had more of a short duration uh, call, not a, you know, dump all your bonds, just be cautious about moving out the yield spectrum into the higher risk, high yield area, um, shortened duration. But we would probably move to maybe a longer duration um, call uh, if we uh, saw that, you know, 10-year up at the uh, two and a quarter uh, range. Okay. It's great to talk to you. Hope to see you next time. But nice, nonetheless, yeah, it's great having you nice on halftime, sort of Lizanne. Nice to sort of be with you. <laughs> All right. That's Lizanne <laughs> Saunders, right, uh, Charles Schwab, uh, Chief Investment Strategist. So I want to bring you uh, a headline as we, we look at the markets here. Dow's uh, good for 200. Otherwise, we are in the red across the board, and we uh, have taken a bit of a turn worse for the NASDAQ. But there's a headline moving now as it relates to the president's nomination of Sarah Bloom Raskin to the Federal Reserve Board. Senator Joe Manchin, of course, a Democrat, coming out uh, and giving that a gut punch, saying, quote, I'm unable to support the nomination of Sarah Bloom Raskin to the Federal Reserve Board. So we'll keep our eye on that, on what is a very big week, as you know, uh, for the Fed, as we also think about the current and the future makeup of the Federal Reserve. We'll take a quick break. Up next, Mr. Wonderful. That's Kevin O'Leary, of course. You heard him talk about China stocks being attractive. We'll find out the exact names he bought, and we'll do that next.
Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is our CNBC News update at this hour. A top Red Cross official says that the Russian war has become nothing short of a nightmare for those living in cities under siege. He also called the war catastrophic for civilians affected by the fighting. The United Nations now says that more than 2.8 million Ukrainians have fled to neighboring countries. The White House, meantime, considering a trip to Europe for President Biden in the coming weeks. NBC News reports that the trip would focus on the war in Ukraine and also reassuring America's allies in the region. Sources say that plans for a possible trip have not been finalized. And J.P. Morgan Chase will resume hiring unvaccinated people early next month. The bank is also dropping its mask mandate for employees in its offices and mandatory testing for unvaccinated staffers. In a memo, the bank says that it's learning to live with COVID as part of our new normal. Aren't we all? Scott, listen back to you. All right, Rahel, appreciate it. Rahel Solomon, we told you about Chinese stocks are dropping today. J.P. Morgan downgrades some of those names and says the space, at least Internet stocks from China, uninvestable. That's a 12-month view, at least. Kevin O'Leary, though, he says not so fast. Mr. Wonderful likes to take the other side of things, as you know. Um, Tencent, Alibaba, and I'm going to destroy the pronunciation of this because I haven't heard of it. Mechuan? Yeah, Mechuan, think of Uber Eats in Asia and China. That's basically what it is. It's, it's growing faster than Uber. Um, yeah, anytime you get an analyst calling stocks, multi-billion dollar market cap stocks, growing in an economy that's larger than ours, or growth rate is, um, uninvestable, that's a buy signal. That's what that is. Those stocks were crushed today after being already slaughtered. So they're down another 7 to 9%, the three that I just bought today. Now, I'm not sure I'll catch the bottom here, but you have to make a fundamental decision. What's, what's been against China, the headwinds for Chinese stocks, all of them, is the ADR structure. To, to understand that basically the law has been changed on them. They've got basically 24 months to get their audit act in order or they're going to get delisted stateside. Now, even if that were to happen, which I think it's not going to happen, they're going to fix this before that does, it doesn't stop the growth rate of these companies. There's, yes, a lot of people in China. So if you're trying to figure out how do I invest in an economy that is probably going to be the world's largest economy in X number of years, we, look, I know we're competing with them, but that doesn't mean I don't invest in it because I can't get growth like that. And these are the big names there that already have the distribution systems in place. So I'm sort of indexing it that way. Now, you have to hold your nose on vol. You can't put the full position on here because today you may want to start thinking about the three-day trading rule. To get Alibaba, to get Baba down 7% in one hour, that's hard to do. That's a very large market cap stock. So thank you, analyst guy. I appreciate that. But at the end of the day, they're still going to grow. And that's why I bought them. 
I'm looking down at my notes, and Farmer Jim Labenthal says of you, Kevin O'Leary, <laughs> he's out of his mind. <laughs> it's, that's what he said. Why is he out of his mind, Jim? <laughs> all right. Well, you, you know, said Kevin it. and I usually agree, I but on this one, I'm, you I'm, did. I'm not. All right, Scott, relax. Scott, calm you down. Said right? it. I'm addressing the question. All right, relax. Um, look, Kevin, here's the thing. Here's my problem. I agree with you about the use of the word uninvestable. I hate it. I hate it. This is the one time in my life that I'm going to use that term. And it's simply because of the delisting risk. Now, you take a stance on it. That's fine. I respect it. I honestly hope you're right. But here's the thing. I won't take that risk because I can't measure it. I can't tell you what the probability is. If you're right, you're going to have a gargantuan return. If you're wrong, you're going to have close to zero. It's just not a risk reward that I'm willing to take. I do think it's uninvestable, and I hate using the term. You know, let me take the counter of that again. Uh, just because it gets delisted stateside doesn't mean you can't invest in it in the local exchange. And on top of that, just because it gets delisted on the U.S. exchange, if that were to happen, doesn't change the growth rate of the company. There is a lot of capital in the world, including sovereign funds, that don't care what exchange it trades on. And I think this is an exchange decision. I get it's a government policy coming into place here to level the playing field, and I endorse that. But these companies are behemoths. This isn't some startup. They're going to get access to customers. They're going to get access to capital. And they're already indexed in some of these sovereign funds. And I watch how capital flows around the world. I don't think these are going to delist. We have the ADR structure to accommodate the current policy. But they've got two years to fix it. And they've also got a lot of pressure from congressmen like Scott here in Florida um, who really wants to level the playing field. And I endorse that as well. I'd like to have a level playing field. But it's the business I'm investing in, not the politics. And that's my position. I mean, the politics of the whole story. What do you oh, mean? Really? It's like discounting a major part of, of the story. Scott, it's still a business. Well, what do you it want? Doesn't matter if it gets- you want our viewers to go buy these stocks on the Hong Kong exchange? No, I'm not saying they should do that. I'm just saying there's a lot of money that will do that. But I'm also taking a chance buying the ADR here that it's going to remain listed. These stocks have been slaughtered. And then they got on sale again today, 7 to 9%. At some point, you may believe they're uninvestable. I don't. I'm a buyer. Shannon, Let's see what happens. Shannon, settle it. Last word. <laughs> I. I, I would not be buying these stocks here. I, I think that there is way too many headwinds, especially now with potentially, you know, sanctions, um, the delisting. I, you know, I think I came into this year very high on emerging markets. Obviously, we've seen the, the Russia situation. Now we're seeing, you know, potentially some challenges with Chinese stocks. The growth rate is there. Kevin is not wrong about access to the Chinese consumer and the, what will be the largest consumer economy in the world. But in this near term, as long as you're facing those headwinds, I would stay away. I mean, just to be clear, too, Kevin, you own Alibaba, don't you? I mean, you've been riding it down from 245 to 79. You're probably a little upset and trying to build a case as to why it can get back to some sort of reasonable levels to allow you to sleep better at night. Well, remember, I don't let these stocks ever become more than 5% of the mandate they're in. I have not been buying it till recently because now... Look, if they have headwinds, political and and other, and also policy from within their own domestic country, but at the same time, their growth rates look tremendous, and they still do, and they are an index for that economy. 
yes, I'm starting to add to position. I can take it all the way back up. It's below 4%. It's below 3%, a couple of those names. I can take them back up, and I've decided to start doing that now. Look, I may be wrong. I may have the right, you know, the wrong day, and maybe I should wait another week. But at some point, you have to balance the risk with the opportunity. And that point for me is now. All right, we'll make that the last word. It's an option straight at best. We will see. We'll see. We'll revisit this, I'm sure. All right, coming up, the top ETFs you need to watch today, plus bracing for more margin calls as we start to see fallout from the big swings in certain areas of the market. We're following that money. We'll do it next. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Welcome to the ETF Edge portion of Halftime Report. I'm Bob Pisani. The chaos in Ukraine continues, but so does the chaos in the trading community. Where are the inflows and outflows in the ETF land? Joining me now, Andrew McCormick, here on set, Managing Director at Wallach Beth Capital. Uh, you know, Andrew, your specialty is execution of large blocks of ETFs for uh, insurance companies, pension funds. How are your clients managing all these risks right now? And what are you telling them about Ukraine and what to do about the inflation issue? So let's answer all those. They're trading. So we see that. Pensions have global equity that they have to have, right? Insurance companies, due to their nature, have to de-risk. So they've been selling. Even our tactical asset managers have gone risk-off. And they're staying more patient with their risk-off. That goes to the second part of your question, the war, right? So it's obviously playing out longer than anybody had hoped. It's a humanitarian crisis. We don't know where the end is to that. So that's going to continue the risk-off. And then the inflation part's pretty easy. 40-year high. I was just at a conference with J.P. Morgan Asset Management. It's two-thirds supply chain, according to them, one-third gas wages, housing, all staying up, right? How do you do that? So how do we tell our people to trade for that? Commodities, gold, hard assets, PDBC is the power shares commodity ETF, doesn't issue a K-1. That's what we've been seeing. 
So you, we were watching Kevin O'Leary. He yeah. likes China stocks, yeah. and you were you were you were shaking your head back and forth. We do not. What no. kind of allocation do, for example, the insurance companies have, uh, pension funds have overseas and specifically to China? And what are you telling them to do about it? Well, they're certainly going lower, and it's for reasons. I mean, obviously, a retail person or someone like Kevin, who's just an investor, can take his shots. But let's let's think three direct things that are wrong with China. Number one, the growth out of China is usually tech heavy. We can see from our own Nasdaq. That's not the space to be in right now. Number two, and this is tricky, you can't say with certainty that they are not part of the cancel culture Russia. We don't know, right? Even if it's a small percentage that that they may say something or do something of support, that carries a tremendous amount of risk. And unfortunately, you have COVID over there, Bob, and now they're going to do lockdowns. Lockdowns aren't good for the economy. So it's not my firm's opinion, but my opinion would be to avoid So you're advising the pension funds stay away? Well, the firm can't, but I do. Yeah. 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 We'll talk about that a little bit more. So we've got a lot more to come on ETF Edge, 1 o'clock Eastern time. How are retail traders who invest in ETFs navigating the treacherous trading environment? Andrew will be joined by Charles Rotput. He's the vice president of the American Association of Individual Investors. And Arnie Nowak, he's the head of systematic investment solutions for America's for DWS. That's ETFEdge.cnbc.com. Halftime back right after this. Let's bring in Pete Nigerian now. I told you, anytime anybody's got something going on, we want them to call in and share it with you. And, and Pete, I understand that you have some new ARC puts yeah, uh, back in February, February 28th, Scott, we talked about having those ARC Innovation puts, the April 66 puts that they bought 5,000 of. Those were about 460 at the time. Now they're 13. Uh, it gives you an idea of how much they're beating up on some of these various names, especially those names that you and I talk about all the time, right? The high multiple, no multiple names. And so you take a look at ARC Innovation. That one's already been producing pretty good. But we also had a, a, a buyer of puts in the ARC FinTech as well. That was last Last Wednesday, 26.5 was where it was trading. They were buying 10,000 of the April 8th, 26.5 puts. And those have moved already significantly, nearly doubling. And then on Friday, we had the ARC Genomic, which is health. And you were looking at it, the stock, uh, the ETF at the time, trading about 44. Well, now they had 5,000 of those puts, the March 44.5 puts, getting bought there. They just continue to come after big multiple stocks. We know what the movements have looked like, and it just continues to be incredible in terms of the downside. I mean, just look at what's happened today, the difference between the Dow and the NASDAQ. It's very clear. I'm sure you guys yeah. have been talking about that. But you look at the NASDAQ and you look at a lot of those names and the names that are specifically in these ARC names, um, those are those high, high multiple names, very risky names, and they are getting hammered pretty good, Scott. It's why we led with what we did today. I'm thinking that the NASDAQ, so unsettled, is such a critical part of this story, especially now. Mm-hmm. And they're attacking arc, the ARC complex from all sides. I appreciate yep. you calling in, Pete. Yep. Giving us Absolutely, that information. Scott. All right. Take care. Yeah, you too. Uh, we'll see you soon. That's Pete Nigerian. Well, we're starting to see the fallout from the wild swings in commodity prices. We're following that money on a day where, speaking of commodities, oil is down sharply was one of the reasons why you've got the Dow up. Oil, as I look at it now, is off 6%. We're back following the money right after this. All right, welcome back to the Halftime Report. We're starting to see the fallout now from the big swings in commodity prices. Our Leslie Picker is always following the money, joins us with that side of the story. Les? 
Hey, Scott. Yeah, the massive price swings that we've seen in commodities over the last few weeks are starting to have ripple effects on Wall Street. For example, nickel. The price surged before getting halted last week. That caused Chinese nickel producer Xingshan to face paper losses reportedly in the billions of dollars. A source close to the matter told me that J.P. Morgan and several other banks are working on terms to extend a line of credit to Xingshan to help it post collateral and meet margin. Bloomberg had reported last week that J.P. Morgan was the biggest counterparty to Singshan's nickel trades. KBW out with a note this morning about how volatility could create challenges for the trading divisions within the large U.S. banks. The firm highlighting the J.P. Morgan nickel situation and noted that trading guidance had already been lower for the three banks that have shared it in late February, J.P. Morgan, Citi, and Bank of America. Analysts at KBW believe there's room for further deterioration given the current environment. Environment. As a result, they're recommending reducing exposure to Universal Bank Group and increasing exposure to asset-sensitive regional lenders. At the moment, though, these appear to be really unlevered, isolated incidents, kind of isolated in the commodities markets. But the key concern among investors right now is are there possibly other pain points out there that haven't yet risen to the surface, Scott? There always are. It's just a matter of how much pain perhaps <laughs> rises to the surface. And we'll, we'll watch for your reporting on that. Speaking of, uh, you're always following the big money wherever it is. Icon is in the news today, and so is Southwest Gas. What's going on? So let's take a look first at shares of Southwest Gas, up about 6% today, but still below the price. Icon is willing to pay the billionaire investor upping his offer price today to $82.50 per share. As recently as the first of the month, Icon had been offering $75 per share and said he was open to raising it if there was another bona fide competing offer. It's unclear, though, at the moment whether that's the case or not. At the $75 price, Southwest Gas rejected what it called Icon's, quote, unsolicited, inadequate, structurally coercive and illusory tender offer. I've reached out to Southwest Gas today for comment on Icon's new offer, but haven't heard back yet. Icon owns about 5% of the utility and has been waging a campaign for about six months now to unseat the board, criticizing it for what he believes to be an ill-conceived acquisition of Quaystar Energy for $2 billion. Earlier this month, Southwest Gas announced a spinoff of its Centuri division, something Icon called, quote, a desperate measure to block his tender offer. So a lot of mud swinging, slinging here. We'll see how it all plays out, Scott. See if, uh, see if we can uh, hear from Mr. Icon on this program one of these days soon. Wink, wink. Leslie, thank you. We'll see you soon. That's Leslie Picker. We'll take a break. We'll do final trades next. Three hours from now, I hope you'll join me for the premiere of Closing Bell Overtime, 4 o'clock Eastern. I hope the traffic's not too bad getting from here to the stock exchange. You can expect all of the late-breaking news and after-hours action, the same type of actionable ideas you get right here on the Halftime Report. We have a big lineup to kick things off. Brad Gerstner will be on with me today. Jeffrey Gunlock on Fed Day. Ricky Sandler, Mark Lazary, Nancy Davis also with me this week. Again, 4 o'clock Eastern time. I hope to see you there. We're going to do final trades in a second, though. Can we show the NASDAQ? Uh, because the NASDAQ is not that far, 60 points or so, above the February 24th lows. It's a key thing to watch. We've been focused so heavily on the fact that it's been so unstable. Big names like Apple at critical technical levels as well. That stock was at about $152, a touch under that as we came on the air today. And as I type it into my fact set, it is 
Well, it's barely holding on to 151. So it's no surprise that as Apple comes under a little more pressure, the overall Nasdaq comes under some more pressure. Dow member, the Dow drops a bit off of its highs. Dow's up 110, 111. So that's where we're going to focus our attention for the rest of the day. And again, uh, on uh, overtime. So let's do some quick final trades. Joe T, we don't have much time, but go ahead. Uh, I will be back in interactive brokers by the time you start your show at 4 p.m. today. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. Financials, interesting play right now. Shannon. Abbott Labs, healthcare is a defensive in this market. All right, Mr. Wonderful. Be the penguin walking in the opposite direction. Try some Apple here. It's starting to look interesting. All right, Farmer Jim. Paramount, continually underestimated by analysts. All right, good stuff. I'll see you in overtime. The exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.